guys. Hi, everybody, guys and gals. Um, my name is Melissa Cheranke Bozich. Um, I am from Dallas, Texas. Um, my home group. So my husband just got home from a trip. So if y'all hear that in the background, he literally just walked in the door. So we're going to try to keep it quiet, <laughs> um, do the best that we can. But um, my sobriety date is December 10th of 2017. And I am really, really grateful to be here. So I normally, uh, when I speak, I'm just going through the steps, but tonight I'm going to add a little bit of my story in just because like none of y'all know me. I don't know you guys. So just to kind of qualify myself. Um, and I hope that there are some newcomers here. Um, I have kind of a wild story. So um, hopefully some of y'all can relate. Um, there is a lot of AA in my story and there's a lot of AA that didn't work in my story. So um, it's just my experience. Okay, so hopefully this doesn't offend anybody or ruffle too many feathers, but um, I'm here to share what my experience was and then what actually wound up working for me, which was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and that's it. <laughs> simple, simple stuff. Okay, so I had a normal childhood. Um, I mean, pretty normal, right? My parents got divorced when I was young. That happens to a lot of people. Um, however... <laughs> My mom was one of those moms um, that is extremely overprotective, right? So it was just her and I. Um, we were very, very close, but also very, very enmeshed. And um, I, there was a lot of pressure growing up for me. But overall, my childhood was really good. Um, however, I took my first drink. I was 15 years old. Um, and... It went, I think, just about how everyone's first drink goes, right? You feel amazing. Everything's good. But I had no idea how to drink. <laughs> um, I blacked out first night. Um, and I woke up in the morning at home. The boys that I was with dropped me off at home. And um, I woke up. And this is kind of where it starts to get weird. My mom sent me to treatment. <laughs> so my first drink, I went to treatment afterwards. Um, and that's that I know that that part's kind of abnormal. <laughs> but um, I grew up in the 90s when therapy and treatment centers and teen programs um, were a really big thing. Right. It was like troubled teens, send them away type of that was like what everybody did. Right. And so my mom was doing the best she could. Um, she never drinks, does not drink at all, not because she's an alcoholic, but just because she doesn't like it. Um, and so she really didn't know how to handle that and thought that, you know, I was really abnormal. So that really started um, my first experience with AA. Um, I was 15 and I had gotten drunk once. And I remember the counselors at this treatment center, um, they kept telling me I was lying because you know how we like tend to be dishonest, right? With uh, therapists and counselors and all these things. They kept telling me, there's no way you only drank once and you're here. Like, there's no way. Um, and I was like, no, I really only drank one time. And when they actually figured out, like they had called my mom, I guess, to give her some kind of a report. And when my mom confirmed like, no, she's only drank once, they were like, okay, she doesn't need to be here. <laughs> so they sent me home. Um, but that did start a very long journey of um, rebellion, me drinking, going to treatment. I mean, I was in and out of treatment probably 13 or 14 times. Um, 
all in adolescence, right? All from the 15 to 18 time span. Um, and so the funny part about that was I was not an alcoholic, y'all. Um, I had the allergy. So I guess you could say, you know, I was, I was an alcoholic waiting to happen, but there was no step one there, right? There was no, I had, I thought my mom was just crazy and she was overprotective and all of these people were wrong and they, you know, I was being treated unfairly. And while some of that might've been true, what I take from that experience, and I'll get into this one, um, you know, a little further down the road, what I take from all of that is if someone is not accepting that they're an alcoholic, we cannot as sponsors, as friends in AA, force them to do what we want them to do. Right. And sometimes, I mean, it's glaring, right? Like sometimes you're like, this person needs to be here. <laughs> um, but it is not my job to get in the way of somebody else's step one. Right. And it is a miracle that I made it back into Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought I knew everything there was to know about AA um, by the time I actually, you know, got it, um, which spoiler alert, I didn't, but I thought I did. Right. And I thought AA didn't work because all those years, you know, when I wanted to drink, people would tell me, no, 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 don't drink. Come to this meeting with me. No, Melissa, you, you know, go, go do this thing. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, I drank anyway, right? I relapsed anyway. So um, it, that, that'll come later. I'll get there. So I go through all these treatment centers. I wind up in this treatment center when I'm 17. I get out of there when I'm 19. It was like one of those really hardcore, long-term um, AA, like cult type of treatment centers. Um, it was really extreme. And we used to have to wake up at, 5.30 every morning and we would do what's called EMBB, which is early morning big book. <laughs> and we would read a page out loud at a time. We'd go around in the room and everybody would read a page out of the big book. Um, and I knew y'all, I knew this book back and forth. Um, like I could quote it to you. We used to have to read it as, as punishment, which is also kind of an interesting thing, but we used to have to read it like as a consequence, we would have to read a chapter out loud in a certain amount of time. And I mean, after you do that for two years, I had this book memorized, but what's funny is I had no idea what it meant, right? I could quote you. I could give you page numbers. I could get up and chair a meeting and give you the entire book. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and so after that, you know, my drinking really still didn't get bad. You know, I relapsed when I got home. It was not good by any means, but it was not, you know, I wasn't experiencing that mental obsession. I started going in and out of AA and what I would do is I would get a consequence, right? I would get a DWI or I would lose a job or whatever the external consequence was. And then I would go, okay, I'm going to get sober. I'm going to go back to AA, um, and what happened every time was I thought in the very back of my mind, I thought I'm going to figure this out one day. I'm really smart, right? Anything that I've ever wanted, I can put my mind to it and I can do it. I'm going to figure out this alcoholic al alcoholism thing and I'm going to fix it because I'm not like you people. And this program is really great for you people, but it's not like I, these, this doesn't apply to me. I'm going to stay sober for a year and then I'm going to drink and I'm going to be okay. 
Um, and that occurred from 19 when I got out of treatment all the way through 27. Um, now I don't really go into too many consequences only because consequences are not that important, right? To step one, um, consequences certainly helped get me in the door. Right. Um, but what makes me an alcoholic is not how many times I've been to jail. And by the way, it's a lot. <laughs> um, I'm the PI queen. Um, I think I got like five or six PIs in like a one year period. It was pretty crazy. But I mean, I went to jail a lot, but you know what? Not all, not all alcoholics go to jail. Um, I never drink in the morning, never. Um, and I held on to that for a really long time as I'm not an alcoholic because I don't drink in the morning. Um, however, I was a very, very violent drunk. Um, and it's funny because like now I'm all bubbly and smiley and, but like, that's not what I look like when I drink. Um, I'm violent. I throw things, I break things. I mean, I kicked through windshields multiple times, which is not fun when it's someone else's car and you have to, you know, replace that. <laughs> um, but I don't really get into like all these deep, dark consequences because at the end of the day, if I'm talking to a newcomer, not every newcomer is going to relate to my consequences. Um, not all of us are going to have the same consequences. Actually, what I've found is pretty much everyone looks different, right? We have some similarities, um, but at the end of the day, what really makes me an alcoholic is this allergy and this mental obsession. And the consequences are just what kind of get me miserable faster, right? Um, and so what I mean by the allergy, I met my husband in 2012. Um, and for a while, it was like, oh, she just really likes to party, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, we were doing this whole like Dallas going out clubbing thing all the time, right? But then there came a point where, you know, I got older, right? Um, at like 25, I'm going to say people stopped drinking like me, right? I was still drinking like I was, you know, a freshman in college, right? Where I'm like, let's go. We're going all night, every night. I'm staying out till three, four in the morning. Um, and my husband is like, we don't want to do this anymore. You know, like, yeah, let's go out to the bar after work, but like, let's go home at eight. You know what I mean? Um, and I really started to see this allergy come at that time in my life. And what would start to happen is I would get really violent during these blackouts, okay? And for a long time, it would be a pretty decent amount of time in between blackouts. And then what started to happen is rather than blacking out and having an episode, as he liked to call it, <laughs> once every six months, it became once every three months. And then it became once every two months. And then it became once a month. And then it became, you know, twice a month, then went to every weekend, then it went to every time I drank. Right. And so I wound up this allergy of mine got so out of control that I would really intend to have two. Right. I did not want to black out and act crazy. I didn't. Um, and that is not what I could say for my early 20s. When, when I was, you know, really when I was young, it was like, all right, we're going and we're going as hard and as long as possible. Um, that's not what it was like at the end of my drinking. I really wanted to have two drinks. I really wanted to have two drinks with dinner and then go home. 
And then I would drink that first drink and I wanted the second one more than I wanted the first. And then I wanted the third more than I wanted the second. And then I wanted the fourth, the fifth, whatever your number is, right? Um, that allergy completely took over. Um, and it didn't matter what time it was, if the bar was closing, if the liquor, like I found a way to get more booze. Um, the phenomenon of craving is a very interesting thing. Like, um, there was one night in particular, and I will go into this story just because it's wild. Um, there was one night in particular where my, I had taken a drink and I'd gone home for some reason. So I probably had like one or two when I went home but that allergy had already kicked off and I was like changing my clothes at home or something. And my husband, um, then fiance was like, you're not going back out. And I was like, Oh, what do you mean? I'm not going back out. I had already had that craving kick off. We didn't have any booze in the house. And I was like, I'm getting out of this house and getting some booze. We lived in the second story apartment at the time. And he took my keys. And so I said, well, F you, I'm going out on the patio to smoke cigarettes. And I took my phone, went outside, I climbed off of the second story balcony and then ran back in all these people's like backyards, jumped the fence and called an Uber and went to the bar. Um, and it's a funny story because he laughs now. I mean, now we laugh about it, but he opened the door and I wasn't there. And he was like, where did she go? Um, but the, the reason that I mentioned that is like nothing could stop me once I started there was no stopping me unless I was passed out or in jail, you know? Um, and that's really key with this allergy. Um, and when we get into the doctor's opinion, I'll talk about that, but I will never forget that night. I mean, I forgot it, right? I don't remember what actually happened, but I know I remember that part. Um, and I'll never forget that, like that immense, this panic. Oh no, I need more booze. And I'm running into these obstacles in between me and my next drink. Like, how am I going to get over that? Um, and then, you know, we go into the mental obsession and long story short, I, I went to treatment again. Everybody left me. My friend left me. We called off our wedding because Nick and I were engaged at the time. Um, we called off our wedding and, you know, my mom was like, you can stay here for like three days. That's it. Um, and basically I went to treatment for the first time in, I guess, 10 years, because the last time I was 17, I got out when I was 19. And at this point I was 27. Um, and it got to the point, I mean, I, I was so miserable, but I still had it in the back of my mind that I could figure it out. Right. So I go to treatment again. I literally looked at the people like my, in, the intake counselor guy and you know, I saw the 12 steps on the wall and I was like, is this a 12 step rehab? And he was like, yes. And I remember being so disappointed. And I was like, how, like, I already know this. I've already done it. I've done it a million times. I've been to all these treatment centers. I've been to AA. I've been to every AA group in Dallas, which was funny because I felt like I had, but I hadn't been to my home group um, now. And I remember he just looked at me and he was like, well, I don't know what you're going to do. If you've tried this a million times, you're just going to have to try it again. Um, and that started my journey, you know, to where I am now. Um, and so I'm going to get into the book now and I'll kind of pepper in a little more context. Um, 
because I think it's really important to go over like actually how it happened. Right. Um, I didn't just work the steps like magic and then now I'm fine. Um, but I, I had an immense spiritual experience when I worked the steps and then I relapsed. Okay. So what's funny is I still had the spiritual experience, but then I got the experience now of getting the obsession removed, having a spiritual experience, and then not doing what it takes to continue and then relapsing. Right. Cause before I had done a lot of weird stuff, but I hadn't actually worked the steps. Right. Um, but let's, let's just get into the book. So if we go to the doctor's opinion, XXVIII. Um, I had never read this, y'all. In all those years of AA and all those years of treatment, I had never read the doctor's opinion. I thought it was like a weird preface that didn't really apply to the rest of the book. Um, and I could be wrong. People could have told me this and maybe I wasn't listening. That's totally possible. But I do not remember ever reading this book or this part of the book. So, okay, it says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, so chronic, keeps coming back in worse shape. That was absolutely me, right? Um, is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Wow. So I always thought a craving was something that happened before I drank, right? That's how a lot of people, I mean, in, in AA and society, right? Um, talk about the craving as what happens before we drink. Like, oh, I'm craving pizza. I'm going to eat a pizza. The craving that they're talking about in the big book is the craving that happens after I ingest, right? So after I take that first drink, like what I was talking about earlier, I plan on having two. I take one and it kicks off this craving, right? So this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. I did not know that other people did not feel like me. I thought everybody suffered from this allergy and this craving and they just knew how to control it better than me. Um, and that's what I had been trying to figure out all these years. How can I control it like they do? Well, it turns out they never suffered from this craving. So that's why they can stop. That's why they can have three drinks and go home. Um, so Moving on, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve, right? So I have this body, right? It says over and over in the big book, which somehow I missed this also in all those years, the disease of alcoholism is a disease of the body and a disease of the brain, right? Body and mind. My, this is describing the body, right? So if I look at that word allergy, which again, didn't make sense to me, I thought that the allergy was something like an excuse that I told my friends about why I couldn't drink. Like if they asked me, why can't you drink? I say, oh, I'm allergic to alcohol. Like that's really what I thought it was. Turns out I'm actually allergic, right? <laughs> um, I didn't know that. But if I have a friend who's allergic to peanuts, okay? And they eat a peanut, and they, their throat swells up or whatever, and they have to go to the hospital, they can't mentally stop that from happening, right? They, like, they can't go, oh, throat, stop swelling up, 
right? They can't control it. It's a physical reaction. And that's what's happening with this craving when I drink. I take one drink and I immediately, I want another one, right? Um, and so what happens if I give into that craving, right? Which I do 90% of the time is I get drunk, right? And that's when the consequences happen. And the consequences, again, are going to look different for everybody in this meeting. Everyone's going to have different consequences. Um, but, right? I wake up from those consequences. And if we go to the bottom of this page, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity, right? So, we flip to page 23, it's the second half of step one. Um, Y'all, my big book is like a mess and it takes so long for me to flip around. Okay, page 23. So it says these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion, right? So what is everyone telling me to do? Everyone's like, just stop drinking, right? If you have this allergy and this craving, and once you start, you can't stop or you don't know where you're gonna end up, just stop, just don't take the first drink, right? And that's what I'm telling myself too. I'm like, Melissa, just don't drink, <laughs> right? Um, the, the problem with alcoholics is that we can't do that because the second part of this disease is our mind, it's our brain, right? And so it says the next sentence, it says, therefore, wait, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. So this allergy thing is an issue, obviously, but if that were the only problem, I would approach it like my friend who's allergic to peanuts and I would just avoid alcohol just like they avoid peanuts, right? I would just leave it alone. I wouldn't need peanuts anonymous, okay? Um, but I have a mental illness too, which is, this is the most twisted part of the whole thing, right? Um, it says, <sighs> um, second paragraph on 23, once in a while, he may tell the truth and the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow someday they'll beat the game, but they often suspect that they are down for the count, right? So it says this word obsession, right? So the cycle goes that we just read in the doctor's opinion, I wake up, I'm full of remorse. I make a firm resolution not to drink again, right? So allergy, craving, drunk consequences, wake up remorseful with a firm resolution. You know, I used to wake up so ashamed and I didn't even know what I did, but I knew I did something horrible, right? Um, and I would never plug my phone into charge. And so my phone would be dead. And those like five minutes of waiting for the iPhone to turn on were like torture because I was like, what texts are going to be in my phone of people being like, Melissa, what the hell? Um, and it was awful. Um, and then what would happen? I would make this firm resolution and I would say, I'm not going to drink till Friday. Or I would say, I'm never drinking again. Or I would say, I'm, I, I would make up some kind of a solution, right? And I would firmly resolve that that's what I was going to do. Melissa, this is not going to happen again. Um, and then I go into mental obsession, which we just talked about, right? I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. 
or I'm really excited and happy, right? The funny thing about, I used to think restless, irritable, and discontent meant, oh, if I, um, if I just don't experience negative emotions and I won't drink, not true. Cause I drank when I was happy to cowboys win cowboys lose. I'm drunk. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to wrap up step one, even though I think it's the most important thing, right? Um, if we flip the page to 24 at the top of the page, it says at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. So I can have the most powerful desire to stop and it doesn't matter. Why? Because the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice and drink. I have no choice because I'm mentally ill. Right. And the best way someone explained it to me was, you know, I have a friend, she has borderline personality disorder and she has suicidal ideation. Right. So when she is in that state of mind, no matter what I tell her, you're beautiful. You're smart. I, everybody loves you. You have so much to live for. She doesn't hear that right? Because she's listening to her own mind, which is telling her something completely different. I, my alcoholism is a mental illness and it does the same thing. Everyone around me is telling me, Melissa, you can't drink. Melissa, you shouldn't drink. Melissa, you have so many reasons not to drink. And I'm telling myself those things too, when I feel bad, when I feel remorseful. But as soon as that mental obsession kicks in, I can't differentiate the true from the false. My brain is literally telling me the opposite of what everybody else is. And that's why my family thinks I'm crazy. And that's why I think I'm crazy, right? Because objectively, I can see what alcohol is doing to my life, but my brain is telling me it's going to be different. My brain is telling me, oh, it doesn't matter. You're just going to drink anyway, right? All lies. Um, and that goes into step two, right? A sick brain can't fix a sick brain. So when step one was explained to me that way, a lot of light bulbs went off and I was able to look at it, which was the biggest blessing, not as are you an alcoholic if you check drink in the morning, check got a DWI, check got a PI, whatever it is, right? It's do you have this mind and body, this illness that is beyond your control, right? If the answer is yes, if the answer is probably, then you might be one of us. If the answer is no, go drink, right? And that is something very controversial in AA. But when I had my relapse, my sponsor asked me, are you ready to work the steps? And I said, I don't know. And so she goes, okay, then you need more vodka. Um, and I was horrified, right? Because I had been in a lot of meetings again in 10 years where if I said I wanted to drink, they went, come to a meeting with me. This woman, thank God, recognized that a meeting was not going to save me. A meeting was not going to get me closer to step one, right? She was not going to get me closer to step one. Drinking was going to give me the step one experience, right? It's done outside of the room. So once I got, you know, down enough, right? I had to go to jail one more time, but that's besides the point. Um, I came back, I was miserable. I told her, I'll do anything you ask me to do, anything. Um, and she was like, all right, let's get going. So we did step two. Step two went like this. We sat down. We did step one. She asked me some questions. Step two, she said, okay, do you believe that there, that what worked for me can work for you? And I said, I don't know. And she goes, where are you at with God? And I said, I hate God. And I did. I thought it was God's fault that I was an alcoholic, right? And I thought if God has a plan for everything, his plan for me sucks. Um, that's really, truly how I felt. 
And you know what she said? She said, great, we're moving on. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, what? Um, I just told you that I hated God and you're saying we're going to move on from step two. Remember, I thought I knew everything, right? Um, and she goes, in the big book, all it says is that you have to believe or you have to be willing to believe. It doesn't matter how you feel, right? And if you hate something so much, you must believe in something, that something, right? If, if you're hating it, you must believe in it. So we're moving on to step three. Let's go. I was like, okay. Um, and then we did step three. All she did was she explained it to me. And it was so simple. I, ha I have to share this. On page 44, um, it says in the second paragraph, uh, to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face, right? So to be doomed to an alcoholic death, that's step one, right? To live on a spiritual basis, step two, right? What is my choice to be, right? And funny enough, if we look at step three, right? I thought for a long time when I was in AA, I would always hear people talking about step three in meetings. And I would hear people say a lot of things like, I turned it over today, um, or I turned it over and I took it back and, you know, stuff like that. And I was like, what are you turning over? How are you turning it over? How, like, how do I do that? Um, and it turns out step three is not turning my will and my life over to God. Step three, if you read it, is making a decision. It says made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God. So I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just making a decision to do something. Right. I can make a decision to go to Europe next week. It's definitely not going to happen. <laughs> right. I'm not taking any action. I'm just deciding. And so she said, okay, here are your choices. Here's what you're deciding between doom to an alcoholic death, live on a spiritual basis. And I said, okay, well, I'm deciding to live on a spiritual basis. She said, okay, we're going to get down on our knees. We're going to do this prayer. And even if it feels like you're praying to your mattress, you're going to do this prayer every day. And we did the third step prayer, which is on page 63. Um, and I got up. And that was step three. We did step one, two, and three all in one sitting. And then she said, okay, we're going to, here's your fourth step. Here's how you do it. Go home and do it. Um, and you have a week. And I did not feel anything, right? Um, a lot of people like have spiritual experiences along the way. That just wasn't my experience. I felt weird. I was like, I'm praying on my knees with this lady that I don't even know. And I think I know everything about the steps and we're doing it totally different than I think. So like now I'm really kind of lost, right? Um, and I went home to work on my fourth step. And the most valuable thing this woman told me was the fourth step is not a big deal, right? I had been through so many AA meetings where somebody said, I'm working on my fourth step and the whole room went, Oh, <laughs> you know? And I mean, I was guilty of it too, right? We all do it. We're like, you poor thing. You're working on your fourth step. Um, it's not that hard, right? And if we look at the fourth step, right, we're making this inventory, the searching and fearless moral inventory, okay? So I decided that I was gonna do this deal in step three. I made a decision, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this deal. If we look at page 65, the fourth step, when it explains it over and over, it tells us that we're to treat it like a business inventory. We're not to get emotional, right? And that's where, I mean, when I had done four steps in the past, that was my issue, right? I got really emotionally invested and it took me six months and I had 70 pages, like literally y'all, I had an eight and a half hour fifth step once. Um, that poor lady, <laughs> she stayed sober. I didn't, but, um, look at page 65, right? And we all know Mr. Brown, right? 
Mr. Brown is flirting with Bill's wife. He told Bill's wife that he was cheating, right? And they get Bill's job. Like that's a pretty big resentment, okay? Um, this is under 20 words. He's bullet pointing. He, he paid attention to my wife, told my wife I'm a mistress. Brown might get my job at the office. Why? Because we're gonna go over all of this in the fifth step. Yeah, so she told me, do not write out long detailed explanations for every single thing because that will get you drunk because you're going to take six months to do it and you won't be recovered and your brain's going to come back. Right. Um, so, so she, she was like bullet points, just enough to jog your memory so that when we do your fifth step, you'll know what to talk about. Right. So we did the fifth step. I was shell shocked after my fifth step. It was not a fun experience because I didn't see a lot of these things, right? I, my poor fiance, now husband, like I cheated on him in my drinking a lot. And I thought it was his fault. Like I was really convinced it was his fault. Right. And I was like dead set that like, poor me, because we had to cancel our wedding. Right. Um, when I was cheating on him and going out till three in the morning, being violent and crazy and drunk, but poor me, right? Um, and all of that was shattered in my fifth step, right? So it kind of sent me reeling a little bit, but then guess what? I did six and seven, that hour at home, right? And then I started on my eighth step list and then she had me do two amends to get started. And then we moved on to 10, 11, and 12, right? Um, and I would love to get into the amends and like, here's the deal. I had never made amends before. Um, I was always the one that would work all the steps till step nine and then dip out because my pride and my ego, right? I didn't want to face anybody that I hurt. I didn't want to take accountability for anything I did. I also didn't see it, right? Because when I'm doing a fifth step that's eight hours long, and I'm just telling you all of my drama and like confessing it to you. And I'm not getting the feedback of like, this is you, right? Of course, I'm not going to want to make amends because I don't really think I did anything wrong. You know, I'm like, this other person wronged me, right? So I go, I do these amends. Very, very funny things happen along the way with my amends. Like I remember the job that I went to rehab from, you know, I made amends to my boss and I'm sitting there waiting for him to come out. And the song was Amy Winehouse Rehab was on. <laughs> and it's just funny. Like along the way, I started seeing those things as a higher power, right? And I still didn't know if there was a higher power out there, but I just was willing to do what I was told, right? But I started noticing things like that along the way. Um, and I get to step 10 and I get to step 11 and I get to step 12 and I don't have a ton of time cause I do kind of want to get into like the good stuff, um, that's happened, but I, I'll tie it in with step 10 actually. So if we go to the bottom of page 84, this is the craziest thing that has ever happened to me. Right? So nine step promises are awesome. Um, the 10 step promises, this is all I wanted as a newcomer, right? If we go to the bottom of 84, it says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. So we talked a lot about this insanity, this mental illness that we have, right? And now these, prom these promises, this book is telling me that I'm going to have sanity around alcohol. Uh, we will seldom be interested in liquor, 
what? <laughs> um, we will, if, if tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. We will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. So I'm not going to be tempted at all. I'm not going to desire liquor. I'm not going to have to avoid liquor either, right? And that's that was new ground for me, right? Because every time I had been in recovery before, I won't even say recovery, and anytime I had been sober before, it had been avoid people, places, and things. Don't be around alcohol. Yeah, all these restrictions, all these triggers, right? But when we learn in step one, like my trigger is just the way my body and my brain works, right? It's not a trigger. It's, it's I breathe and I want to drink, right? Um, so I'm not going to have to avoid any of these things. Um, and then it, tell, it tells us that it happens in the background. It happens automatically. And that happened for me at six weeks sober, y'all. I worked the steps in three weeks, right? I did my fourth step in a week. My fifth step, five, six, seven, eight, we did all in one day. I did two amends and then we did 10, 11, and 12 all in one day, right? And thank God, you know, because that's the way they used to work it back then, right? When this book was written, like Bill was going out to hospitals like super early in sobriety. Like it is not reserved for one year, for two years, for three years, for five years, 10 years, whatever it is. This spiritual experience, the psychic change, right, is not only for people who have certain amounts of time, right? And what happened for me was it was my birthday and I was six weeks sober and I had a birthday brunch and one of my girlfriends who didn't know that I had stopped drinking brought me my favorite bottle of wine. And I took it home because I didn't want to like cause a scene and make her feel awkward in front of all these people, right? And at the time I was 10 stepping. I was meditating and praying every day. I was doing my 11th step and I didn't have any sponsors yet, but I had a commitment and I went to that commitment every week and I shared, right? And I was open to sponsoring. So I was in 10, 11, and 12. Um, and we got home, we like shoved the bottle in the closet and my husband, two weeks later, my husband was cleaning and like opened the closet and pulled out the bottle of wine and was like, hey, I forgot we had this. And I looked at him and I started to cry because I had completely forgotten that that bottle of wine was there. And wine was like my jam. It was literally like wine was my favorite. And what had always happened to me in sobriety was I, if I was around alcohol, if that would have happened to me before, it would have been every time I walked past that closet door, it would have been like, what do I do? Do I drink it? Do I throw it away? Do I call my sponsor? Do I like, oh my God, do I dump it? Like, what do I do? Um, and I had truly forgotten that there was a bottle of wine in my apartment for two weeks. And I remember calling my sponsor and being like, this is real. Okay. I believe you. I believe all of you people. And like, that's when I believe that's when I knew God was real. Right. Because I had tried to do that for so many years on my own and it never happened. It was always miserable. I was hanging on for dear life. Right. In sobriety. And it was like, I was always thinking about alcohol um, or if I wasn't, I was thinking how like, oh, in a year I'll be able to drink, right? There was always something, right? Um, and I literally forgot that there was alcohol in our home, right? For two weeks. And that is what this paragraph tells me, right? That is what the steps did for me. 
Um, and there's so many other things, right? I have this beautiful marriage. Now my husband got into Al-Anon. He worked the steps. He's like wild about it, which is really, really cool. Um, we were able to walk a spiritual path together and heal our relationship, which is what that's crazy because it was extremely toxic y'all. Um, and I mean, the, the things working with others, the 12, the 12th step, there is nothing like it in the world. Um, I got the opportunity to hear one of my sponsees tell her story recently, and that blew me away. Um, and then to see that woman helping other women after that meeting where she shared her story, I saw other women going, hey, can I get your number? Um, that is wild, right? Um, and she asks me all the time, well, they all, they all do. They ask me like, what can you do? You've helped me so, or what can I do? You've helped me so much. And I tell them what my sponsor told me, which is give it away. That is the secret to this thing. And the funny part about it is for so long, I thought that 12th step was reserved for the gurus, right? I thought that was for special people who knew what they were doing and knew what they were talking about. No, AA would not be around, right? If Ebby hadn't done service work for Bill, right? If Bill hadn't done service work for Dr. Bob, right? We would not be here unless newcomers had carried the message, right? And it's so impactful when someone who's been sober for two months can tell their story and they've had this spiritual experience, right? And that's what I tell my girls. You can help more people than I can. I mean, I'm still new. I only have three years, but like when you're a brand new, hearing somebody that has two months it's mind blowing. You know, I used to think, oh, you have 10 years. I I'm never going to get there. I'm not going to listen to this person. But when someone came in that had two months, um, and that's it finding a commitment, which I know is so hard during COVID, right? It's so hard to like find somewhere to carry the message, but that is like the number one thing that has saved my butt. Um, it says in the big book, when all else fails, work with another alcoholic will save the day. And it's true because guess what? Anything I'm going through, I go talk to another woman that's a newcomer and I, it takes me back to where I was three years ago. And I'm like, you know what? I'm all of a sudden filled with gratitude. My problems are nothing today compared with what they were, right? Um, and I'm not fighting that obsession, right? I don't ever, there's a bar. There's a fully stocked bar right here next to me. My husband is a moderate drinker. And I have my coffee pot on top of the bar and I make coffee next to some liquor every single morning. And it doesn't, I don't even have a second thought about it. That is a miracle for somebody like me. Um, and it's a true testament of what working the steps just like they did back in the day, which that was the difference, right? I wasn't doing this one step a month type of thing. I worked them in three weeks fast, like they did it back then, right? Through the big book. Um, but yeah, that's it. I was a little all over the place, but I'm just going to wrap it up there. So I appreciate y'all listening and I hope to talk to y'all soon. I hope someone got something out of it. <laughs> Thanks y'all.